Thank you, Papa, for another day in grace and in your mercy that we can gather in worship, free to lift our voices, our hearts, and cry out to you, Creator, as your creation. And Father, you, you told us that on this side of eternity, there will be trials, there will be seasons of pain, there will be challenges, but you tell us that you have overcome that. And we are victorious in Christ today. Our hope lays on an empty tomb. That's where our hope is, victorious in Christ. But right now we, we, we ask, we cry out to you, and we beg you, Father, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we may hear your word today as we plead to you, teach us your ways, Father. Would you strengthen our hope in you today, Father, so that in that hope that we may applaud you, follow you in obedience in Christ, and Leave these walls to live on mission at home, in our neighborhoods, work, school, and across to the ends of the earth. For your great glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you launch out into 2020, it's going to be a great year for a lot of us. Many successes, many delights, many pleasures, the fruit of our hard work and the joy of play. But this year, by the time we get to December of 2020, we'll also have seen many of us encounter unbelievable trials, various kinds, varying degrees of suffering. And if the pain is intense enough, you will be tempted to literally or figuratively walk off the stage, walk off the auditorium of life. And leave the story because you believe that God is not writing the story. The only way that you'll stick around when times are tough is, is you'll believe the clear teachings of Scripture that God is writing a story. Every part of it is interwoven, heading toward an end that will never end. And so in the midst of your pain until we get to the end, if you believe there's a story, you'll repeatedly cry out to God, help me. And you'll pray and you'll pray and you'll pray, believing you're part of a story. And even though that your sin is great that you see in the midst of the story, you'll believe that God forgives you in the midst of the story of your sin. And he still keeps you in the story. Today we're going to look at one of my favorite prayers in the Bible, Psalm 25. Uh, psalms, there's 150 of these psalms, they're really nothing but prayers, um, 73 of them written by David, Israel's greatest king, and I love the psalms because you feel like, man, I could have written that, and so even though he was a king, he writes like a commoner, he writes like somebody who's just in a lot of trouble and sees no way out. But the thing that you're going to learn over and over again, when you are looking at Psalm 25, the man never stops praying, which some of you have, because you say the pain is too great. 
I can't pray, and so I would say it's worth it to be here today just to see the guy never stops praying. If you have a road map of how you get through 21 verses in um, 30 minutes, this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, the psalm sort of is divided up with the trial that David faced, the terrors that it caused, the help that he prayed for, and the God that he believed in. The trial that he faced was simply an attack on his life and his kingdom. Verse 1, Psalm 25, In you, Lord, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies, that's the heart of the problem, triumph over me. Verse 19, See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. So David had a lot of battles as a king. He doesn't really tell us which one this is. All we know is that these adversaries were confident. David knew they were confident. They could take him down, could bring dishonor to his kingdom, to his name. And since he was king, they would also plot his execution as well. So the first emotion that he feels as he's praying in this trouble is he's very honest. I am afraid I might die. The second emotion that David feels is that of loneliness. Psalm 25 verse 16 Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I'm lonely, I'm afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from anguish. It's not a normal type of loneliness, like you're waiting for somebody that's late for 10 minutes. This is a type of loneliness, like it feels like there's no one else in the world with you. David's household was full of servants, hundreds of them. He had military personnel on his right and his left, and he still felt like there is no one around me right now that understands the depth of my pain. Anguish is exactly what you think it is. It's a, a mental torment, emotional pressure, the kind of pain that you wish you could turn it off, but it pretty much dominates your mind and your heart all day long. But then David does what every God-seeker should do. He reminds himself, I'm not alone. It takes a lot of willpower to do this. So he prays to somebody who's listening. God, look on my affliction. God, see how many numerous are my enemies. God, guard my life. So he's refusing to believe the lies of the flesh, the lies of a cynical culture that nobody's listening he knows that God is observing him. And he knows that God is tender toward his pain. And he knows that God is in the process of sending help, of sending strength. So he prays. If you do not pray with this type of feisty faith, you will cave to the cynicism of our culture that views God as distant, not present, and when, and, and when you give yourself over to a spirit of cynicism, everything dies after that. Cynicism kills hope. So David says, I have hope. I'm not going to withdraw. I'm going to take another risk. Even praying is risking. And I'm going to dream instead of shut down. There's nothing like heartbreaking loneliness that can cause you to experience the presence of God.
That's what it's for. Paul felt that in a Roman prison cell, having been arrested for preaching the gospel. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, the end of his life, at my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side in that prison cell. He gave me strength. And, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. The purpose of loneliness There's nothing like suffering. There's nothing like suffering that will cause you to understand what prayer is about. Because no one else can say anything to you that makes any difference. And so you're so lonely, and you take a risk, and you dream that there's a God who's listening. And you will discover in that type of praying in the midst of loneliness, you will discover something of God that you had previously never known about Him. Because you didn't have to know that about Him because you had everybody else around you. And God will come to you in the midst of that prison cell and He will be dear to you. Paul Miller in his book on prayer says that these lonely times can be compared to a desert and the problem of living in a desert is you don't know where the desert ends. You can't see northeast, southwest. You're in the middle of the desert and you don't know how to get out. You don't know which way to start walking. I I wrote a a missionary friend this week, devastated by a family crisis that took them off the mission field. They had learned the language seven years, planted their life. Crisis came to their family. Now they're back in the States and they're living in a desert. What do we do? Our whole life has been dreaming of taking the gospel to those who've never Heard and he wrote me back. He said, It does feel like a desert more than I would prefer, but oh, how I want God. And I want to want him more. This is how you pray in the midst of agonizing loneliness. The third emotion that David feels is guilt. He says it three times in the psalm Do not remember the sins of my youth, my rebellious ways. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it's great. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. So he's got two things coming at him now. He's got external pressures. He's got this trial, the sorrow that's come from without. And now he feels the sorrow of the recognition of how sinful he has lived his life. It's really worth a whole sermon. I won't go there, but I would say for anybody that's under 40 here, please be careful about the sins of the youth you engage in, even when David was an old man. Those consequences of those sins still haunted his body. So the purpose of all of of God's activity is to make us like himself. The purpose of all blessings is to conform us to the image of God. The purpose of all sorrows is to conform us to the image of God. The character traits that God is trying to create in you, probably two categories. He wants you to be righteous and wants you to be loving. And all of these pains are telling David, you have missed the mark in righteousness 
and you have missed the mark in love. And there's nothing like sorrow that reveals to you the deficiencies of your character. The fourth emotion that David feels is confusion. He acknowledges he has no idea what to do right now. He's disoriented. So he says, God, show me your ways because I don't know which way to go. Teach me your paths. I don't know what path to walk on. Guide me in your truth and teach me because I feel like I know nothing. It's not unusual in the midst of sorrow to totally lose your bearings, to want to ball up on the floor and cry because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. This is why we love the Psalms because we can identify with this man. We can identify with a man who says, none of this makes sense to me. But again, I want you to fully also identify with a man who while (coughs) nothing makes sense to him, he continues to pray 18 times in Psalm 25. David asked God to do something in his life. I want to ask you this morning, if you're in the midst of sorrow, are you simply looking at your pain? Worrying about your pain, being cynical about your pain, or are you 18 times said, God, you have to rescue me out of this pain. David prays about everything, and he, he basically, there are three categories that David asked for in Psalm 25. He asked for deliverance, he asked for guidance, and he asked for forgiveness. First, the deliverance. Psalm 25, 2, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. So I think he may be praying for military rescue. I mean, I would if I were him. But I think he's praying broader, larger than that. God, don't let me be put to shame. Don't let me live as if someone who's been abandoned by their God Let me live in hope. Deliver me from quitting. Deliver me from walking off the stage. David is refusing to be ruled by a cynical spirit that turns him into a passive man. He's praying and he's waiting for the sparkle of the divine energy to come to his situation. Second, he prays for guidance. Show me your ways. Teach me your path. Guide me in your truth. Because you are my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. This is what we love about the Psalms. David prays like a man who believes there's a common thread in all of these circumstances. And that is God is in this and he's guiding me. David believes that when you get to the end of our life and you look back on all the sorrow, you're going to see that they're all interwoven, bringing us to an end, a glorious end that never ends. He believes, by the way he prays, God is guiding him. Why quit the story if God is guiding you at every step of the way? There's no such thing as pointless pain All of it is being used to get you to the place in the story where God wants you to be. So his heart is breaking and he prays 
like a brokenhearted man. Paul Miller says, when you stop being yourself in prayer, you have stopped having real conversations with God. Oh, do I tell God what's on my heart when I pray. When I feel, when I feel like my ministry is over, when I feel like the hand of God is not on my life, which is not uncommon, I tell God, I feel like that. I feel like I don't have any more words to say. I don't know how I can bear fruit for you, God. I just need to let you know. This is what I feel like, and I tell him. I tell him that, but I make sure that I'm praying and not just worrying. So David is praying for guidance. And the way that God guides us is normally by revealing his character to us. God will show us a character trait that he wants us to be like, a mission that he wants us to respond to. But normally God does not guide us by... uh, writing five things on the wall that we're supposed to do next. He normally guides us by causing us to gravitate toward his character. And as we gravitate toward his character, and as we follow his character, fall in love with his heart, we just naturally end up at the place where he wants us to be. God, he will reveal whatever you say right now. He's not telling me anything. I don't know what to do. With my pain. My suggestion to you in then do nothing. If he's not making it clear about anything to do, do nothing. But the path will be clear. So what you have to do is I gotta get my heart ready. I have to, I'm looking for the path. I the I desire the path and everything about my present place in life, I'm obeying and putting into practice. And I'm shutting out from my ears all the noise of the world that would prevent me from hearing when God speaks. And God will reveal the path ahead. When you need more light, God will give you more light. The third thing that David asked for is for forgiveness. It's interesting. He prays for direction for the future because he knows what he's done with direction in the past, and that is he's sinned and not listened to God. So the third thing he prays for is forgiveness. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. This is pretty stunning to me because most people that are in the midst of sorrow pray, get me out of this sorrow. David prays, get this sin out of my body. He's much more aware of his sin than he is his sorrow. I'm grateful for the way that he prays. I love the the two uses of the word remember in verse 7. Don't remember the sins of my college years. Do remember How much you love me when I threw away my college years. Don't remember my sin. Remember your love. Don't remember sin. Do remember your love. So the basis of David's hope that God is a guiding God are two primary massive characteristics about God that he says in verse 8. Good and upright. Those are the two. Good and upright is the Lord. 
And therefore, because God is good and upright, He will lead sinners in a new direction. If you will know the primary job description of God, there it is. What's God doing every second of the day? He is leading sinners to Himself. He's leading sinners to a new life, out of the old into the new. That's what God does 24-7 because He is good and upright. Now, when David says that God is good, it uh, comes from a Hebrew word that could have been translated benevolent, generous, kind, or loving. So, let's change it to loving. So, the first characteristic that causes David to have hope that God's going to lead me, give me direction out of this trial, get me through this trial, is God is loving. Second characteristic that David says that God is a leader worth following is because God is upright. We could translate that as holy, infinitely pure, or righteous. So what is David's hope? That he's praying to a God who is worth waiting for? His hope is that God is righteous and God is loving. You want to you fall in love today with the beauty of God? That's it. God is sovereign because he's the greatest of all powers, but he's sovereignly beautiful because he perfectly combines infinite righteousness with infinite love. This is the God we're singing about today. He's righteous and he's loving. Now, the world has always tried to separate these two. The world sees God as loving but not righteous. That allows them to continue in their sin. Many people in the church see God as righteous but not loving, and they don't think they can be forgiven of their sin. You'll never know the true God until you combine them. Sovereign beauty, God is infinitely loving and infinitely righteous. If God were only loving, he would be like a babysitter that lets children eat pizza on the couch, play in the road while cars are passing by, and watch trash on television, which is going to scar their mind. And those children would say, we've got the coolest babysitter in the world. He's loving. But if God were only righteous, and he has no love, then he would be like a God who says, you have no place in my kingdom because my standard is perfect and you have not lived up to my standard. So the kind of God that we pray to is infinitely loving and infinitely righteous. And therefore, this is the God who leads us. Because he's loving and because he's righteous, he will lead sinners. God is loving, and therefore he will lead you to experience maximum joy. God is righteous, and therefore he will lead you to honor him with maximum glory. God will never lead you to experience maximum pleasure while it leads to dishonoring him. He'll always lead you maximum joy to yourself, maximum honor to God. So as David continues to ask God for guidance in the midst of this trial, he concludes the psalm 
or his prayer by telling us there's three characteristics of anybody who will know and do the will of God. Three characteristics of somebody who will be led by God. Number one, they're humble. Number two, they're covenant-keeping people. And three, they fear the Lord. First, he says, a person who will know and do the will of God is humble. Psalm 25, 9, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. So what's it mean to be humble? I guess it means I could talk quieter and apologize for sometimes being loud. Or I could say biblical definition of humility is somebody who says, I don't have the strength to be here on stage today. I don't have the strength to lead a church. I don't have the ability to do what God has called you to do. I'm weak. Prayer is an admission of helplessness. Paul Miller says, if you're not praying, you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. It's amazing. We spend our life trying to overcome our disability when it is our disability that we lift to God in prayer that releases power that we've never experienced. Don't hate your inability. Don't hate your disability. Let it humble you that you might turn to God in prayer and see a power that's far greater than your ability. Again, Paul Miller says there's nothing secret about communion with God. If we live a holy life before God, broken of our pride, self-will, crying out to God for grace, then we will be in communion with God. A second characteristic of a heart that is going to be led by God, a heart that will do the will of God, it's a covenant-keeping heart. Verse 10, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demand of His covenant. What does it mean to keep God's covenant? Well, it obviously doesn't mean to be sinless because David has already said, I got a problem with sin. So a covenant-keeping person is not sinless, but a covenant-keeping person does realize that God is the source of all truth, all life, and He's worthy of all devotion. And I want Him to enter into a covenant with Him, and I don't want to live a divided life. I don't want to be like the double-minded man in James chapter 4 who lives two lives. Like the man who looks at pornography and then gives his wife a warm greeting. Double-minded, non-covenant-keeping mindset. I'm, I'm two different people. David says, I only want to be one person. I don't want to have a split personality. I want to be a person of integrity. The very word meaning one person, not a person of a divided mind. That's a covenant-keeping person. The third prerequisite to knowing the will of God is that you fear the Lord. Who then 
are those who fear the Lord. He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. The Lord confides in those who fear Him, and He makes His covenant known to them. Before we look at the term to fear the Lord, I just want to look at the promise, the reward that comes to those who fear the Lord. God confides in them. He brings them into His his inner cabinet. He tells them His secrets. Sort of like in Exodus chapter 24 when God was about to rain fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. God said to the fellow members of the Trinity that were there around Moses. He said, I'm about to destroy this city and shall, shall I not tell my servant Moses? No, I will not hide from him what I'm about to do. Jesus to his disciples said, I have told you the secrets of the kingdom which the world does not know. This is the glory of being part of of God's family, he brings you to the dining room table and he tells you secrets that the world does not know. Listen, if you tell a deep secret of your heart to someone, does it not reveal to them how close you are with them? That you shared a secret with them. The king of the universe has brought you to his table and has told you the secrets of the kingdom. You know how the world ends, the glory that is to come, and how to get there through Jesus Christ. And the world looks at you as if you're crazy. And you know the secret because God confides in those who fear him. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, I think it means... That since God has shared his secrets with me, I will not attempt to live a secret life away from God. That I fear the prospect of leaving this church today and living in secret sin when God has pulled a chair up for me by his table. I fear living a secret, double-minded life. In fact, what does it mean to fear the Lord? I think it means I fear the fact that I can't live a secret life. I, I can live a secret life from you. I can't live a secret life. God, before God, Coram Deo, before the face of God. Everything I've ever done in my life, I did it at that dining room table in front of The face of God. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to be, to tremble at the prospect of fear of of sinning in the presence of that God who's seen my whole life. And that was very bothersome to David. It led him to say in Psalm 25, 11, For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. You know what David says? God, I did those secret sins at the dining room table. I was sitting next to the Holy Spirit who told me, don't do it. And to him, I said, I'm going to do it. The king of the universe shared the secrets of the kingdom with me. And instead of causing that, instead of that causing me to tremble, I trembled instead in the presence of sin 
and was more attracted to that than I was to the king. God, you told me that every sin that I commit requires bloodshed of an innocent animal. So when I sinned, O oh God, I knew that an innocent lamb would have to die, and I sinned anyway. All of these things are part of this verse that causes David to fear the Lord and to tremble because his sin is great. And when you look at sinning in the presence of God, can I ask you a question? Is there anybody in this room whose sin is not great? But look at David's hope about his great sin. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my great sin. What is David's hope for being forgiven? He cried enough? Nope. Felt bad enough? Nope. Made up for it? Did 10 year, New Year's resolutions? Won't do that again? Nope. He said, my hope is the greatness of your name is my only hope for being forgiven. Only hope. What does it mean for the sake of God's name? Think about this. Let's say there's a doctor in town or somewhere in the country. Has enormous ability to, through his surgical skills, to heal disease. Or to bind up life-threatening wounds. And whenever you hear that doctor's name, honor comes to that name. Somebody can say that doctor, his name, and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, that's an honorable man because of what he does. He removes disease. He binds up wounds. So when we think of God's name being honorable, it's because of what his name offers. That we can bring our great sin to him. And the name of God, the honorable name of God, will forgive it. If you want to know how God shared his name with his people, you have to go all the way back to Exodus. Moses had been invited to climb to the top of Mount Sinai. He was going to receive the Ten Commandments. The second version, he broke the first set. Not a good day. Second version of the Ten Commandments, he goes to the top of the mountain and God says, Wait here, I'm coming down to the mountain. It was worth the wait. Look what happened. Exodus 34, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name. So he's about to tell Moses what my name is, what my name means. This is what the name of God means. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, meaning the compassionate and gracious God, Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So the name of the Lord that David was hoping in is equivalent to the honor of God, the honorable name of God, which is a sin-forgiving, compassion Granting, justice-producing, mercy-giving, guilt-erasing God. Every sin in the world that is unconfessed, God will judge. 
every sin in the world that is confessed, God will forgive. That's the God that David prayed to. And all of that was possible. The promise that God made to Moses in Exodus 34, this is what my name means. David, you said confidence is in my name. Because of your name, you'll forgive my sin, though it's great. All of that promise about God's name was made possible because of the fullest revelation of the name of God in the New Testament. Joseph visited by an angel, his fiancée Mary, pregnant with the Son of God, had to choose a baby name, and the angel said, this will be his name. Matthew 1, you are to give the Son of God the name Jesus. This is back to Exodus 34. Because he will forgive, he will save his people from their sins. Now, I love this verse. Because think about when David prayed his verse. He prayed this verse 1,000 years before Jesus Christ came. And 1,000 years before Jesus Christ came, David said, your name, O God, means you're a forgiving God. How much greater, 10,000 times greater, should we be encouraged by the love that God has for us, by the name that was given to his very son, because through Jesus, every word that was spoken in the Old Testament has now been rewritten in the New Testament, except now no longer with black ink, but with red ink, because every word in the New Testament has been written with the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And David says, this is why in the midst of my crisis and my trial, where I'm feeling confusion, loneliness, fear, guilt, I could pray to a God because he's loving and he's upright and his name means he forgives sins and he proved that he forgives sins by sending Jesus to bleed for my sin. Jesus came into the world to show that God, in the middle of our sorrow, wants to be part of our sorrow. And every time we pray and not resort to cynicism, not resort to walking off the stage in passivity, every time we pray, the incarnation happens again. And God, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, comes in the midst of our sorrow. Every time we pray... God incarnate through the Spirit comes into our life. And so David says, this is why I have hope, God, because your name means you're not done with me. Your name means this trial is not the end. Your name means that this trial is not because of my sin. Your name means you're going to forgive me. Someone came to my office this week. A minister had said, how do you do it? For 33 years, how do you stand on that stage when you say you do not feel like you can do this again because of failed God, failed at home, just weak, fearful, which is a lot. And I took him to Psalm 2511 and I said, the success for 33 years of my ministry, 
the success of this church, the reason why you're here today and they were just putting chairs out in the back because of the increasing crowds, the reason for all success of this church is because of the greatness of the name of God. That should free you up. Though your sin is great, He will always forgive it because He is upright and He's loving and He sent Christ to bleed so that the greatness of His name would mean that you are forgiven of sin. So now there's only one thing left for you to do and that is to say, I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep praying. In the midst of my sorrow, I'm going to go back to Psalm 25.1 and you, Lord, my God, because of these realities, I will keep praying and I will put my trust. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I love the sufferers among us. I feel their suffering to some degree. I know what it feels like to never want to pray again. I know what it feels like to wonder what in the world are you doing. I know what it feels like to say, I can't do this. I know what it feels like to be tempted to walk off the stage, out of the auditorium, out of the story. But God, we thank you for this psalm and all of the witness of Scripture that you are writing a story with our life. And everything that's happening right now is interwoven with that which has come before and that which is coming after. You are bringing us, God, to a glorious end that will never end. And the story will continue despite our sin, despite the greatness of our sin. Your name, O oh God. You are righteous. You have a fierce hatred for sin. You are loving. You have a fierce desire to forgive sinners. And you have made forgiveness possible of the greatest sin because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I pray today, God, for those whose lips have been silenced by sorrow, that they would pray today. And Lord, right now in this auditorium, we simply say the name, Jesus. 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 Yes, the name of God is great because of Jesus. The name of God is certain and trustworthy because of Jesus. The presence of God is here because of Jesus. The forgiveness of sins is possible because of Jesus. We know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven because of Jesus. You are not done with us because of Jesus. We have a future and a hope because of Jesus. And you are working out all things for good because of Jesus. And it's his name, in his name, with David that we pray and hope and trust. Jesus. Amen.